I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 7. One of the things that's great about consecutive expository preaching is you know where you're going pretty much the next week, and um, so it was good to not have to figure out what we would do after Psalm 7. If you would, uh, join me as we go back to the Lord in prayer before we go to His Word. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are not silent. You speak through creation. You speak through your word, your word both written and living. Father, as we just sang, we pray that truth will prevail over unbelief. And so, Father, may your words of truth that we will consider now, will it drive unbelief out of our hearts so that we would know more and more what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask of your people. Oh, Father, thank you for not being silent, but speaking to us through your word and by your spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember a movie once that had a line where one of the characters said, Life is painful. It's hard to argue, isn't it, against a statement like that? And I don't think there's anything like the pain of a false accusation. There's an immediate and sharp pain, an acute pain that almost sometimes goes off the charts. But there's also a nagging and dull pain, a chronic pain, if you're always, it seems, subjected to false accusations. Indeed, there's almost nothing worse than a false accusation, nothing worse than slander, the spoken word against you. Indeed, the assault, the accusation comes through words. Now imagine right now, somebody says to you, you stole a car at 11.30 on Sunday morning, the 23rd of July, 2017. False accusation, right? Easily provable, not true, because you're sitting here listening to God's Word at 11.30 on a Sunday morning. But what about the accusation as to why you did something? Your motive, your thoughts. How do you defend yourself against that kind of false accusation. You can't just easily do what you did when you say, I didn't steal the car because I have an alibi. I was here. I've got witnesses. Well, it's not surprising that the trauma of a false accusation shows up in the Psalms. Because many of the Psalms are songs not only of praise and thanksgiving, but lament. Where the psalmist is Oriented, he's disoriented, and then he's reoriented. Calvin says this about the Psalms that they are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Utterly realistic the highs, the lows, and everything in between. And I am so glad that our Bible has the Psalms in them. 
They cause us to slow down. The Psalms appeal to the whole person. They demand a total response as we read them. As we read them with faith, we're not just informed, but by God's mysterious working by the Holy Spirit, we are transformed. The Psalms are important. We learn how to lament before God. We're able through the Psalms to vent in a godly manner. Have you been with people who said, hey, I just need to vent, right? And it's a great thing. I mean, Jason, you mentioned that, that one of your ministries to this man was just to listen to him, right? And, and, and there's a, an appropriateness of being able to, 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 to what's pent up in us to be spoken. And the Psalms guide us in how to complain in a godly manner. I'm so thankful for the Psalms. Now, Psalm 7 in particular is another psalm that we run into that has an added title, uh, possibly a historical situation and purpose. Remember Psalm 6, David declared his guilt, as it were, and, and sought forgiveness. But here in Psalm 7, David is going to declare his innocence and he's going to seek vindication. Because Psalm 7, as we will see, is a personal lament to God in view of a false accusation. And again, through Psalm 7, we are going to learn how to vent in a godly manner. Now, our approach to Psalm 7 will be to view it, or rather to sing it, through the perspective or the voices of three singers. David, Jesus Christ, and then finally, you and me. And we'll start with the original singer, David. And in doing so, we'll consider the structure and flow of thought of the psalm. Join with me now as I read Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. O oh, righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief. And gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, 
and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Let's take a look at this psalm through the eyes of David. The historical situation could be really one of two things. Uh, It could be Saul's pursuit of David that we read about in 1 Samuel 23 and 24, or it could be during the time of Absalom, his son's rebellion, when some of the Benjamites rose up against David. We don't know exactly the historical situation, but but David, as you see um, at the beginning in this title that was added, that it's a Shigayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. And no one knows what a Shigayan of David is. Something to do with music, something to do with lyrical poetry. But the historical situation is believed that Cush, this Benjamite of the tribe of Benjamin, is slandering David, is making false accusations. David's integrity is being tested. And we see in verses 1 and 2 this cry for deliverance. David secures himself right at the outset that God is his refuge. Notice the present tense, I take refuge. In other words, David is saying, I am taking refuge now, right now. But yet there's a future. He goes on, save me and deliver me. He's looking for salvation. He's looking for deliverance. But right now he has said, the Lord is my refuge. You know that David is only able to say this if it is true. This is not the power of positive thinking. David can say it because he believes it. He knows it to be true. Before he looks at his problems, he looks to the Lord, to the adequacy of God. Years ago when Michelle and I were in Texas at our small church plant of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, I remember the book table went up outside the sanctuary and I was eagerly looking at books and I ran across this book and I, I bought it and I read it and it's on my shelf to this day. It's called When People Are Big and God is Small. A formative book in helping me see more of who God is and who people are. And the author there makes the point if people are big and the problems that they're bringing to your life are big, then God sort of cannot but be small. Because the people and the problems are up front and God is somehow pushed into the background, into the distance. Even small things can seem way out of proportion. Kids, I meant to have a quarter with me. I forgot, I'm broke. But if I had a quarter with me or two quarters with me and I put them up to my eyes, what could I see? If I had two quarters and I brought them to this close to my eyes, what would happen? What would I see? I'd see just the quarters. I couldn't see anything else. But David is saying, no, God is big. People and my problems are small. And we do ourselves spiritual harm by focusing on the problem to the exclusion of focusing on the Lord, the one who David says is my refuge. So yes, life is painful. Yes, there are trials and problems and difficulties. But let me ask you this. Have you made the Lord your refuge? Or are you just waiting 
for some day later to do that. So there's the cry for deliverance. And then it moves on to a claim of innocence. David confesses that that God knows his heart and he submits. David is confident in his innocence. If I have done this, he writes. If I have done this, if I have repaid evil. David's got a clear conscience, a boldness, a guilt-free conscience. It's a shield. It's not a claim to sinful, excuse me, sinless perfection, but rather it's a claim to innocence in this particular situation, in this particular false accusations. Notice between 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6, there's a, a term, selah, a musical term we believe. What you have is an opportunity to catch your breath, to change the key, because he's cried for deliverance, he's claimed his innocence, and now he's going to call for God's righteous judgment. In verses 6 through 16, he, he is confident that God will rise to judge. You see in verses 6 through 9 an intervention, and then in verses 10 through 13, an affirmation, and then finally in verses 14 through 16, a retribution. This is a graphic picture, and I encourage you to read it over and over again, kind of like that graphic description in Nahum chapter 1. Here's the picture of the judge coming to the courtroom with power and authority, and he will condemn the guilty, and he will acquit the innocent. In verse 9, we read, You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. No hiding from the gaze of God. What God sees, God knows. The eye of providence is looking down. About a year or so ago, there was a a big battle brewing between the FBI and Apple, the maker of the iPhone, over privacy versus security. Everybody hears this statement, a right to privacy. In fact, sadly, our Supreme Court found a right to privacy in our Constitution somehow that has led to ungodly consequences. But really, in view of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, about God's word being living and active, able to penetrate, and who people stand, what, naked and exposed before the eyes of God, before God's gaze. David recognizes that, and he's going to to rest in that. Look at verse 12. This is what God says about Himself. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. The English pastor and preacher Charles Spurgeon, many of you may know that he's, there are volumes and volumes of his sermons. And Spurgeon had the ability to take one verse and preach for 50 minutes, five times on one verse. Well, you know what the title of his sermon on Psalm 7 verse 12 was? And this is not a joke. Turn or burn. 
turn from sin or burn under the wrath of God. That's not Spurgeon or any other pastor being mean and cruel and unkind. That is actually being the most helpful, the most kind, by confronting people with the reality of sin, God's wrath, but also salvation in Christ. And notice verses 14 through 16, you see the life cycle of sin, the boomerang effect of sin. It's Romans 1 of God giving sinners over to their sin, where the sin ends up overtaking them. It's, it's, um, it's the, the words of the great R&B uh, song from years ago, cheaters never win, they always get it, they always get it in the end. And that's a biblical statement. Sinners never win. They always get it. They always get it in the end. And David is affirming that. But then after he calls for God's righteous judgment, in verse 17, there is the confidence of a clear conscience. Here's David doing what I can't stand people doing. Thanks in advance. David is thanking God in advance, and that is clearly appropriate. It's not like he's obligating God, as are sometimes, I believe, people use thanks in advance. For if you don't give, then, you know, are you being mean? This is a thanks in advance that is honorable and right. He is so confident that he gives thanks and he sings praises before he actually sees. He's walking by faith and not by sight. Because his ultimate hope lies in the righteousness of God, not in his innocence. So with David here, we have six pictures. A vicious attack, a hushed courtroom, a waking warrior, an honest appraiser, an angry archer, and a failed ambush. But we also have one promise, a promise to give thanks and sing praise. Well, now we need to move from David to Jesus. Jesus as the singer of this psalm, because first and foremost, Psalm 7 is about Christ. Because these are really about the thoughts of David's greater son. David, the king, is pointing to the Messiah to come. It's a window into the heart and mind of Christ. What was Jesus, in other words, thinking? What was he praying? In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, we read this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus would have known Psalm 7. Jesus would have prayed Psalm 7. He would have sung Psalm 7. Patrick Henry Reardon, an Orthodox priest in his book, Christ in the Psalms, writes this. The humanism of the Psalter is a humanism rooted in the Incarnation. The Psalter is not human merely because it speaks for man in general, but because it speaks for Christ. The underlying voice of the Psalms is not simply man, but the man. To enter into the prayer of this book is not merely to share the sentiments of King David or one of the other inspired poets. 
the foundational voice of the Psalms, the underlying baseline of its harmony is rather the voice of Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. In particular, he goes on to write and say this, this, meaning Psalm 7, is supremely a psalm of the Lord's redemptive sufferings at the hands of injustice. Line by line, it inscribes the mounting drama of the passion. Such is the proper setting for Psalm 7 as humanity's single just man suffers and dies to atone for the sins of the rest. To pray this psalm properly is to enter into the mind of the Lord in the context of His redemptive passion. It is to taste, in some measure, the bitterness and the gall. Because we need to remember that Jesus lived a life of false accusations made against Him during His earthly ministry. Remember? the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes. He's breaking the commandments. He's sinning. We saw that all throughout Mark's gospel. And at the time of his trial, we heard that Jesus was accused of many things. False witnesses were brought before the council. Jesus lived a life of false accusations. But Jesus responded to false accusations as well. And how did he respond when falsely accused? Well, we see first his silence, especially at the time of his trial that we heard from Mark 14. But we also see him, as Peter writes in his letter, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus lived a life of false accusations against him. He responded primarily through silence and through just trusting his father. But let's take a look at God the father's response to the false accusations of his son. The father didn't believe them. Jesus is Vindicated through his resurrection from the dead. He is declared to be the Son of God with power, Paul writes in Romans 1. He writes to Timothy that Jesus is vindicated by the Spirit. It's amazing. This man who was falsely accused, he will call and convert his former enemies. Look at the day of Pentecost to the preaching of his word. Former enemies who put Jesus to death are called to faith in Jesus. A man, Saul, persecuting the church is blinded by Jesus and he's made a new creation in Christ. Through the preaching of the gospel, people are both warned and invited. But David and Jesus are not the only singers of this psalm. You and I sing this psalm. And so we're going to consider finally two matters regarding false accusations. How to prepare and how to respond. But before we do that, before we can sing this psalm, especially in view of how Jesus sang this psalm, we first have to not identify with the one who is innocent, but rather with the one who is guilty. We need to first put ourselves in the shoes of the wicked. 
And you see David doing that in the previous psalm, Psalm 6. Because we are the false accusers of Jesus. Every time you and I disobey, it's as if we're falsely accusing Jesus. Jesus says in Revelation 2, I am He who searches mind and heart. Jesus tests not just our outward actions, He tests our heart. So we have to, first of all, get off our high horse and recognize before we can proclaim innocence along the lines of what David did, we have to proclaim guilt. What do we do? We ask for forgiveness. And then what happens to us? We are joined to Christ by faith in an unbroken union and therefore we have His righteousness. So let's get back to it. How to be prepared for false accusations. Because we are joined to Christ, don't be surprised by being falsely accused. It's not random, but it's part of our suffering for Christ. Paul says this in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Amen. He goes on to say, and the fellowship of His, fill in the blank, His sufferings. You want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection? You're also going to know Christ in the fellowship of His suffering. And when we are joined to Christ, we will be hated. Not a surprise. Not caught off guard. We see it in the lines of Scripture. In the Sermon, of the, on, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 10-12, through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Are you ready for this? Falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He writes similar in John 15. Paul would pick up this theme in Corinthians, when persecuted, we endure. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. He writes Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will be falsely accused. In Hebrews 11, we read that others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. We also see that in the history of the church. Men and women killed and being killed. And what was and still is the universal weapon of this pain, this suffering? It's the tongue, the word, slander, scorn, misrepresentation. How to be prepared for them? Be prepared for them. And how to respond to them? Well, in view of our union with Christ, we respond how? In a Christ-like manner. We neither defend ourselves nor strike out against. We can say nothing. We can be silent for a day of judgment is coming. Therefore, we can rest. We can also pray that the accuser will repent. And are we ready to forgive others if and when they repent? Do we long for judgment or mercy for others? 
Would you want God to do for others what He has done for you in Christ? Mercy and not judgment. The human courtroom considers external evidence only, but God's courtroom goes all the way to the hidden recesses of the heart. And because of that, we cannot stand in the courtroom on our own and think that we can walk away. But if we follow David here, we do not stand alone, but rather we stand with Christ in our place. John Newton, in his hymn, Approach My Soul, The Mercy Seat, hymn number 507, says this in verses 3 through 5. Bowed down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed, by war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Because not only do humans falsely accuse us, but Satan himself falsely accuses us. Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. O wondrous love to bleed and die, to bear the cross and shame, that guilty sinners such as I might plead thy gracious name. We need to wrap up, and I want us to all put our eyes on the first verse and the last verse. O Lord my God, The last verse, I give thanks to the Lord. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. The Lord brackets this psalm. And all of life, including the most severe trials brought on by false accusations, is lived within this bracket. The Lord my God, the Lord most high. So reading this psalm forces us to ask really just one question. One question. Have you taken refuge in the God of justice? Because my friends, justice really is good news. Because the wrongs will be righted and right will be declared to be right. Have you come in repentance and faith to the one who both punishes the guilty and acquits the innocent? Have you come to the cross where justice and mercy meet, where God's wrath is satisfied? Have you taken refuge in the God of justice? Because for the Christian, justice is not something to be feared, but something that's to be longed for and awaited. Because our lives are hidden with God in Christ. The psalmist writes, The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Taking refuge in the God of justice. There is no safer place on earth to be than taking refuge in the God of justice. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm.
We thank you that in many ways it expresses the cry of our heart. Oh, Father, would you give your people such a growing love for their Savior and an identification with him that they can also, in the midst of suffering false accusations, may they continue to walk with joy as they look to Jesus. And Father, would you, in view of the danger and the pain of false accusation, would you give your people a desire to speak to one another only words of truth, only words that build up and do not tear down? Oh, Father, would you be pleased to save us from the sin of making false accusations? And may you defend us when others make false accusations against us, especially because of our faith in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We respond today by singing.